Welcome to the FinTV podcast series, where we tap into the collective expertise of the world's leading supply chain, manufacturing, and digital innovators. My name is Maria Villablanca, the co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, and I'll be your host. Join us every week to hear the opinions, lessons, and general guidelines from the industry's leading minds. FinTV, insights for today's digital leaders. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of FinTV. Uh, today, we're joined by someone who's joined us before, but we're always happy to have him here. We, uh, this is Neil Ackerman, who is Head of Advanced Technologies, Global Supply Chain, Middle East and Africa at Johnson & Johnson. Neil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. I enjoy working with you folks, and this should be a lot of fun today. Yeah, it should be. So why don't you tell us, and for, for those of the people that probably uh, are only just watching you for the first time, uh, a little bit about who you are. Hopefully, I think I'm like a lot of people. I'm a supply chain person at heart that would listen to uh, the Future Insights group. Um, right now, I'm a, a global expat and I live in Israel with my family. We, uh, our team here really focuses on the advanced technologies, the startups, uh, cutting edge work in supply chain that comes out of Africa and the Middle East. Um, and then we work on scouting that technology uh, and then testing it and then scaling it uh, across the globe. So we're really excited about our work here. And um, generally, we're just really happy to be with you today, Maria, and answer some of your questions. And, um, you know, people can always catch me uh, on LinkedIn or email me. And I usually try to respond to everyone if I can. Great. Thanks. Well, why don't we just dive straight in, uh, talk about what is covering the news everywhere, which is COVID-19. What's your take on the impact that coronavirus is having on global supply chains? I mean, overall, I've been asked this a lot, and, and I would say that I have a nice perspective because I've worked in the U.S., in Europe, uh, and now in the Middle East and Africa. Um, and overall, I think it's really defined as an overall disruption of the, the really mechanics of the economy um, and, and how you think about supply chain and logistics in general. Now, I think there's a lot of folks here that can talk about various circumstances and businesses. Overall, if I had to really focus on a, a couple uh, for this uh, podcast, I'd say that it has a very large food uh, and a medical impact. Um, I'm not denying the other experiences of a receding demand of other businesses. I just think that these two have had a very large impact. Um, and as a result of that, I think the mechanics of their economics changes. Now, specifically for pharma, you know, it's minimal uh, disruption for some aspects, but for medical supplies, of course, it's not. And so I think there'll be some longer term aspects to how pharma focuses on generics and active product ingredients, um, where they're gonna be produced and where they're gonna be stored. Um, I do not have a crystal ball. I don't know how they're gonna reorient this supply chain, uh, but I'm certainly not naive that this is gonna be something that will have to be discussed uh, from governments and of course from pharma companies and even the consumers and the customers of these products. Um, related to the food value chain, 
uh, I really think of it of two things. There's the staple value chain of wheat and corn, and then there's the high end of, let's say, the uh, meat, fish, fruit, vegetable business. Um, here, I, I read a lot and spend a lot of time, of course, in these different countries, and it's really about a labor market impact and logistics issue uh, as they focus on the central positioning of the top countries that produce these high value in staples and how that will be reoriented. Um, now, the question will be, you know, will the world get amnesia and forget about COVID? Um, and, you know, I don't have a very good opinion on this. I, I think that people tend to forget. And so maybe over the short term they won't, but possibly over the long term they may. And then this may be totally wrong with the way I'm thinking about the impact. Uh, however, um, as a person that's in these businesses and understands them, has worked in food, has worked in pharma, uh, has worked in medical supplies and other CPG businesses in many continents and countries, um, I don't think that they're just gonna forget um, and there will be some shifting in orientation of these businesses and of the mechanics of the economies that bring them together. Um, I do have one more thing to say on this matter, uh, and that is in regards to other businesses uh, where e-commerce has been uh, impacted. Uh, you're gonna have lots of folks that have many opinions on this. Um, my opinion is the same as it's been in the past, which is can't stop the e-commerce train. Um, and this train was going to go this way regardless. Um, the generations of my children uh, no longer go to stores. They haven't. They don't. Uh, they've been buying online for years. They think it's ridiculous that I have a cart in a supermarket that is half broken and I run around picking food and then going to a, a person in the front who then scans all the food and puts all that food back in the cart when I take the clickety cart back to my car and then empty the car at my house and put everything away, my children look at me like I'm in the Flintstone cartoon. So it's, if you think about it, the process flow of that is utterly silly. Um, and now that we have seen this happen, uh, it is not surprising that e-commerce is gonna take off and stay that way. Now, do people like to go to stores? I guess, yeah, I like to go to the mall and other people enjoy the social interacting. Um, it's just that not everything will be needed to go to the store anymore. There'll be more ways to use your time more efficiently um, and frankly, with more value. I'd rather spend time with you and, and my friends than go spend two hours at the supermarket by myself. Um, I do enjoy going to the mall and buying, you know, let's say clothing and electronics and, and gadgets and things of that nature, but we also enjoy the social aspect of that. Well, so, there's also a, a, a mindset shift, isn't it? A mindset shift where we're probably old fashioned. We like to go and touch, you know, yeah. the, the goods and, and see it. But uh, what this virus has taught us is that we kind of don't need to, uh, we can get on without it. And so what you're saying, if I can paraphrase is, is that, the e-commerce train isn't going to stop. If anything, this has accelerated that e-commerce yeah. train. Yeah. Yeah. And look, there's always winners and losers at the end. I do think, though, that there is a sad side to that, which is the big, big brands get really big in this type of environment. 
and the small brands and the small businesses have a really hard time. Um, you know, when you search on e-commerce, the screen on a mobile phone is rather small. And, you know, that space is the window, right? Mm. You can't see it. You don't buy it. And yeah. so the search engines are moving towards these big, big brands for the win, right? And the smaller brands don't have the money to show up on the screen, right? It's, it, I call it a one-screen world. You know, mm -hmm. he who wins the screen wins the sale. It's really simple. And so, you know, I fully uh, understand and empathize very deeply with all the smaller brands and the small businesses that I see all over, especially over Middle East and Africa, that, you know, really struggle in, in this. And so that's why I also believe that there is going to be this other world that will open up very quickly when people start getting out. Don't underestimate the power of networking and people and relationships. Uh, I do think that, the, that it is not one or the other. I think you're going to see people are going to strive for connections with people in their communities um, even more uh, after this. And frankly, I hope yeah. they do. So that's what I think about the impact of COVID-19 uh, currently. Um, you know, th we can go on for hours on it, but this is generally where my head is at at this point. And, and Neil, insofar as um, supply chain design, you know, what kind of changes do you think we're gonna see in supply chain because of this? You know, that is a, a really hard question um, because I think it's a reflection of the people behavior uh, and the social changes, which are very difficult to predict. I kind of look at like the prospect of behavior theory, which is people will give more weight to a potential loss uh, than a gain in making a decision. And so we'll tend to overestimate the chances of this unlikely event um, of a certain disease, you know, continuing to grow and, and unfortunately um, impact many people's lives. But uh, following uh, these kinds of disasters, a tendency would be that you think another threat is imminent uh, and can be magnified. So um, as we think about people's behavior and social changes and how they view what will happen next, uh, these feelings will be reflected in people's decisions of placement, of supply that they're gonna create, demand that they think people are gonna have, and fulfillment and how it's executed. And so it's not so simple for me just to say, oh, I think the design is that they're gonna, you know, move distribution centers closer to where consumers are. And, and I mean, these are common things, or they're gonna uh, take the, the products out of big countries and kind of bring it all back home to their political, you know, environments and so they could control something, you know, yes, all that could indeed happen. Um, it also is possible that uh, governments are going to set up what I call medical supply enclaves, not even on their properties, but other countries that they're allies with just to keep it together in certain allied networks. All this is, you know, written about. But at the core of this design is people. And how people reflect and react will be how this will go. And, and you don't have to look any further than the huge differences of political 
parties and frankly in Europe and in North America and how they think about this particular uh, threat, um, this pandemic. Um, and it will tell you that how they think about it will drive design of a supply chain. Now, of course, no one likes to hear that. They want the textbook answer. Uh, unfortunately, these are the types of things that I believe re re really require a conversation amongst many stakeholders um, because no one is going to have exclusivity on a good idea. No one. So I would love to hear all ideas, and I'm sure you would too. And then eventually, we don't know if it'll be the best one, but we know that we have to pick one. That's just how it works. So we'll, well see. I guess that's what's going on in, uh, in supply chain functions all over the world at the moment, you know, looking at what's, uh, what's the next step, what we're gonna be doing. Um, I like your idea about the fact that nobody has exclusivity on, on the best idea. We're gonna have to try different things. Uh, let's briefly touch upon um, the supply chain leaders, you know, versus uh, the supply chain leader of the future versus the supply chain leader of maybe yesterday. I mean, uh, up until COVID, I think we were headed in one direction post, you know, COVID's really changed everything. So what does the supply chain leader of the future kind of look like? Yeah, so, you know, we've, you and I have discussed this for a few years now, and we've had many presentations on it. And I've always tried to think about you know, I don't want to repeat answers from the past. And, and honestly, I think that this COVID pandemic changed my answer a bit. Mm -hmm. um, the role of the leader is more important, I believe, than ever because of the impact of supply chain driving the success of a modern organization. I mean, I, there are so many times I can tell you I'm at meetings and forums and people say, oh, supply chain, you know, it's hard and gnarly and messy. Um, and so when I speak to even folks in colleges and universities, it's like, oh, we're going to do marketing because that's fun and sales and, they, you know, but now it's like, yeah, that's great. Except if you can't do the supply chain, we are like it now. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're actually in many ways uh, some of the coolest people there is today. I, and, and I've never been cool my entire life. I mean, <laughs> literally never cool. Um, you know, all that from never can get a date to, you, you know, all the way to never having the right clothes. I was never cool. Um, but what happened is all of a sudden I wake up now and the, the people, the coolest people, want to talk about supply chain. Celebrities talk about supply chain. The government talks about supply chain. Presidents talk about supply chain. I don't even know if they know what supply chain is, but they're very excited to talk about it. So you can argue that uh, uh, the future of the supply chain leader could actually turn into the CEO of many companies. And I know that's a very big statement. That is a very big statement. And I think you and I have talked about this before in terms of supply chain having an image issue, you know, like how many guidance counselors five years ago were saying, you know what, kid, you should go into supply chain. Not, not many, you know, it's not right. It's certainly not in my school and I bet not in your school either. Uh, no, but yet no. my children don't even know what I do. Well, but, exactly. You know, it's easier when you can show them, but it's harder here. Um, my son asked me, um, 
now that the pandemic hit, Daddy, how are you going to load all those trucks when you go to the office every day? And I said, no. And I, and I stopped myself and I said, you know what? You're right. I, I don't know how we're going to, I don't know how we're going to load the trucks. So um, what, what I'd say is this. Um, the supply chain leader is going to have to understand all aspects of the organization, just like they did before. Supply chain leaders know more about the P&L than mostly anyone I've ever met besides a CFO organization. Because, you know, the cost structure is there is and probably still should be a huge aspect of their life. Um, because, you know, we're not in the business of losing money. Um, however, uh, they also have to understand internal, external capabilities because like the job I have now, I'm looking at advanced technologies for supply chain for the future. If there's ever been an example of someone that does transformation of a company end to end from, you know, everything from raw material to a consumer using it at their home, all those transformational activities and scouting and scaling is in the group I, I try to represent. And so we focus on all the evolving business models, direct to consumer, omni-channel, you know, the, the hot terms, um, but also things that you wouldn't have thought of yet, inventions that ha are, are still being created. And there's many examples that are not for this call that I would one day love to share, but things that would blow your mind. And it's even beyond self-driving trucks. So, wow. So, so yeah, but that, that's, people already know that, but there's other uh, cooler things. So um, I also would like to uh, comment two more things, if it's okay on this, Maria. Yeah, go for it. The first one is um, supply chain leaders of the future um, will be unable to hide from the high level of complexity of the different markets. You see, the global world now uh, is separating people. Right. There, there's folks that, you know, over the years, you could say the right thing. You can, you can do this. You can do that. And you could probably move up and, and, and enjoy those benefits. Uh, however, now with the complexity and the flat world that we live in, as Thomas Friedman wrote a very famous book, uh, The World is Flat, if, if you read it, um, these, these different markets are showing that they're all really one. And folks that have understand different markets, countries, cultures, uh, behavior, uh, the complexity of a supply chain business, uh, the P&L, and then can play between operations, which is core, and you can probably recruit for 80% of that really easily, honestly. It's gonna be really hard to recruit and scale for the supply chain transformation that's needed. Um, and you know, this isn't, this is a fact like businesses that were here, you know, 50 years ago are no longer in that top fortune 100. It is a fact. And it, you're, we are sitting on the beginning of this long decade plus period where people like me and others are all of a sudden, I can't believe we may actually become the cool. Now I'll still have my dorky glasses. And I'll, and I'll still likely not have all the cool things to say. Um, but at least when it comes to supply chain, I won't mess up the P&L. I'll understand the core structure. We'll make you money. 
um, and will transform for the future. We'll know what's next. We won't be a bright, shiny object. So Listen, the, the, the day you the day you get groupies, the day you get groupies, then we know you've you've arrived, you know, in supply chain cool, right? Uh, I don't even know how you define groupies. I mean, if you have thousands of followers on LinkedIn, is that a groupie? I guess you do. Maybe. I guess you must have them. Yeah. Uh, but maybe, listen, yeah. It, 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 I don't I, know. I, I my wife will totally... tell me I'm still a loser, so we're okay. <laughs> I tell you what, I, I think I think you're right with regards to everyone seems to be talking about supply chain now. You turn on the TV, you've got celebrities talking about supply chain you've got people my next door neighbors talking about supply chain whereas before when i would have to explain so i work in this space you'd say supply chain people's eyes sort of oh, yeah, over, totally. you know, yeah, and they know what people don't understand that so so do you think therefore that the supply chain leader has got a real shot a real opportunity now to really become a, an integral part not a, just a cost center but an integral part of the decision making and strategy of a business i think supply chain is the revenue generating machine that companies were waiting for. They always thought, oh, I know how to generate revenue. We'll do marketing, we'll sell it. They used to say, pile it high and let it fly. Well, no. The days of people going to stores to seeing piles is shrinking and things are not flying. So um, now it's about, wait, sweet, those supply chain people it's not just about cost anymore. Now the big differentiator will be um, what group of supply chain transformation leaders can build me revenue for a revenue generation. And if you're at the board level and, and you're sitting there and saying, I know what to do, and you don't have anyone on your board that is transformative specifically in the space of supply chain, I don't mean did a nice Twitter tweet thing or did a TikTok video. I mean, understands that P&L of transformation of supply chain. If they're not on your board and understand the end-to-end core structure and transformation possibilities, um, then you're, you're gonna lose. And that is gonna be part of a diverse and experienced board that I think is gonna grow. And so having that future state in mind as part of the team, you will need marketing, you will need salespeople, you will need HR, you will need finance. Um, and in your top three, you're gonna need supply chain. Because uh, without it, you're gonna go broke. Um, and and there's, no, there's, there's no obvious um, more example than the last few months. If you can't fulfill, you fail. Yeah, that's it. that's it. Well, let's let's talk about a topic that's really close to your heart, which is uh, uh, predicting demand and uh, uh, essentially demand sensing. So, yeah. is it possible for uh, companies to accurately predict future demand when, if you think about now, we're in a you know, we couldn't have predicted this pandemic, or I guess maybe some people could. So is it hard to predict demand with the unpredictable? Well, first of all, I guess you are right. Some people could. I mean, this video is showing they did. Um, but ultimately, uh, the majority of those people listened to the videos and then kind of went on their day. It, it's kind of by human behavior, which is also a different podcast. Um, but can they predict demand uh, against anomalies? So I'm gonna go out on a limb uh, 
and people may say I'm crazy, but the answer is yes. Um, navigating the current climate does require uh, new intelligence, uh, resiliency, uh, dependence on advanced analytics, um, and machine learning. Yes. Uh, and, and by the way, don't take those lightly. Uh, most companies don't even do them. So yes, it does require that. Um, but there's other tangible focus areas when you think about demand anomaly. Um, I've learned that working here in the Middle East and Africa, um, you can use a lot of downstream consumer takeaway data uh, to really understand that. You could implement demand equations and prediction models uh, and adjust them. You could incorporate social media uh, and geographic impact data in your models. Um, you can use that for a short-term focus um, and your long-term focus, so you can adjust it uh, quickly. Now, how does all this work? There are many companies that I can't mention names on this call, but there are many, because I didn't get their permission, but there are many companies that um, are able to take data from social media, from the web, from consumer takeaway traffic, from government sites, put that all together into an AI machine learning algorithm and begin to predict a high, low, medium expectation for demand. And, and I've seen it myself, I've seen it work. So yes, there is. And if anyone who says, no, there's, there's no way to use this for anomalies, um, then I don't want them on my transformation team because there's no such thing as no. There's a such thing as how um, or what if, um, but not no. I do wanna point out uh, one thing though here, and that is, um, this is not uh, a game of, you know, let's spend money and get a shiny object in supply chain and say we do machine learning. That's not how this works. Uh, supply digital chain transformation, yeah, digital transformation for the sake of digital transformation. Yeah. You know? Supply yeah. chain people generally don't think that way. Generally, we're very pragmatic, very operational type of minds, and I have very rarely seen uh, that happen. I, I do see it happen in other areas of companies, but generally in supply chain, I have found that they're pretty good at un understanding their, their demand pull, their supply pull, and some good prediction models on a long-range financial forecast. So. Um, I would say that that's a good measure. Um, and that's why, as I stated earlier, the problem and the combination of what you need to find is folks that have the experience of global markets and financial uh, acume, you know, really understand, and understand technology and transformation. There is, there is a, a certain, you know, sort of uh, important aspect of that. Um, and so this leads to, I think, the second part of your question which was demand sensing. So um, for, I don't know, a long time now, um, you and I and others have been talking about demand sensing. We even wrote a, a, an ebook on it. We gave six, seven practical pieces for companies to get started on demand sensing. And folks can look that up on your website. You can make the ebook available again. I know yeah. you have it. If not, yeah. you can email it. Um, I've got it, I've got it, yeah. So, you know, is it a high priority? Yeah. Any company from the smallest to the biggest needs to know their demand. Um, so of course it's a high priority. 
Um, it's a future capability that's needed in the near term for forecasts and the long term. Um, it will, what is it, right? It basically uses and senses capability and technology that come together with data to create your detailed short and long-term forecasts. Okay? So it will reduce forecast errors, it'll increase inventory accuracy, it optimizes the deployment downstream across your distribution network, and of course your labor uh, allocations. Now, what do I wanna add that's different in this uh, discussion? Um, I never really talked about it much, but I actually would like to say that I also think it's uh, a bit of an art. Um, yes, for a supply chain person to say that, it has some artistic qualities to it. It's not just a science, it's also uh, an art of, of, create, of being creative. Um, you have to really rapidly analyze the data uh, and decide whether to act or not. And that, of course, is an art. And so I think that's a important aspect of demand sensing. Um, do I think that you always need POS data to get started, which some people don't know is like the end point of sale takeaway data? Uh, no, you can use demand forecast orders and shipments just to get started. Uh, and then, you, of course, you'll get better as you bring in uh, more pieces of external data. There are many companies, by the way, that do this now. It's not like it was five years ago. I mean, everyone's selling it, right? So I'm not selling it. I'm, I'm not a company. That, uh, I work for J&J. &J. But there are companies that do this, uh, and I would encourage folks to get help if they need it. Um, and yeah, so that's what I'd want to say about the well, but, well, but let me, let me ask you this. I mean, if you, you just said that demand sensing is critical. It's important. I mean, you know. It, put it into terms so that other people can understand how important is doing demand sensing. That's number one. And number two, why aren't people doing it? Okay. How important? I'll say it like this. It's the most elusive and important change in supply chain where the ability to predict the future accurately could step change your business. That's why it's important. Um, what other technologies in supply chain are important to embrace? Artificial intelligence, which I really think is real intelligence, um, will revolutionize your processes. Um, other technologies like advanced predictive analytics, IoT, which is Internet of Things, sensors and robotics for autonomous uh, automation. These are all big watch outs uh, that are gonna get moving. Short term, you're gonna get really big traction on robotic process automation and process mining. Um, I read some statistic recently that 50% of large global companies will be using AI and advanced analytics uh, by 2023 to improve their transparency and information flows, uh, reduce their friction end-to-end, -end, try to reduce costs, and enable optimized inventory levels. So all this will be there. And so what does this really mean? Well, look, it's about democratization. If everybody's doing it, then you're no longer gonna have a competitive advantage. So you're gonna need step change leadership 
and step change transformation ideas to make this most elusive thing of knowing exactly what people want accurately at the perfect time, you're going to have to build the right skills and teams to do that. Um, and I do think it's not just going to be from supply chain people. It's going to be from cross-functional businesses that come together to unlock what I call the optimization for my consumer experience. Mm -hmm. And so I would say to conclude this call in the new era of supply chain, it's going to all come back to one important thing. And that'll be what does the customer or the consumer want? And whatever supply chain group, team, leader, organization within a company is the most adapt and best to understanding the consumer experience, they'll win. Because if you look at the big companies now that have done it, they did not exist 20 years ago. They all knew that they needed to create the most incredible customer experience, um, whether it be in digital movies and TV, in books, in retail, in web services, in cloud computing, in technology devices, and now- in travel, in, right, in travel, so, in hotels, you name it. Yeah. You name it. But where was there a flaw? You know, in many cases, the medical, medical business and the food business was just kind of like, no, we're going to roll around. We're happy, right? Well, now we've seen the food business is not, you know, uh, going to be on the side anymore. You know, that whole thing is totally being disrupted. And over the next 10 years, it's going to be a whole new world. For All right. So, 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 but, but answer that, that part, which is why aren't companies embracing this technology? Do you think that they're daunted by it? Do you think... They don't find it important. What's the reason? Well, look, I, I don't know why every company is not doing it, but, but I will tell you uh, a few opinions. Um, one, you ever, you ever think about when things are really hard? If yeah. things are really hard, right, and you're going along and you're doing your thing, um, most people, not all, right, most, so greater than 50%, don't like change and they don't like to do hard things. I don't know what the percentage is, but let's just say 50% of the companies just don't like change and they don't like. Well, it, or, right? or, or better yet, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, we're, we're plugging yeah. along, we're doing well. So why, why embrace a hard thing when we're okay? Right. What if we mess it up? What if we put the forecast in and we have a, a massive problem? You know, I mean, you can, there's articles. I mean, you can name all the lists of what if, um, and usually when I'm in a meeting and someone says, I, you know, what if we did this? What if we did that? I always say, that's your anxiety talking. That's what I always say. Literally, I publicly say it. That's your anxiety talking. What if it works great? Mm. So, you know, people tend to think on this predictive behavior theory of the negative side. So let's just say that's, let's say, 50% of why they don't do it. Well, what would be another reason why they don't do it? Well, uh, another, probably another 30% to this why we're not doing it um, is because our industry is different. We're either way too complicated, so this could never do, um, 
or we are way too simple. So we don't need to do this. You know, so why bother? Either one. So let's say that's another 30%. And then the other, let's say 10% that aren't doing it because 10% do do it, let's say. Those 10%, it, it, in a, I mean, and it's a real thing, is, you know, they, either, they don't have the resources to do it um, or they don't want to put the resources in to do it. And that's real. So, you know, however you break up these percentages, and it doesn't really matter if you agreed to the 30, 50, 10, I don't care. These are all legitimate reasons. Cost, um, my business is too simple or my business is too complicated. I love those, by the way. It's a silly mm -hmm. talk. Um, or I just don't like change and um, I'm not doing this. And this is my people don't do this and I'm not hiring and I don't do this. So, yeah, that's why I think there's lots of reasons why people don't embrace it. Uh, but honestly, at the end of the day, what I'm saying to you is no different than business books written by all the top universities in the world. Why did Kodak fail, right? I mean, it's not like they didn't know about it. They, they, what was the reason? Well, they liked it the way it was. Change was hard. They didn't want to invest the money. And their business was really simple, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. They're not the only ones, you know, they're just a you, yep, yep. example. You've got plenty, plenty of examples, the blockbusters yeah. of the world, you know. Everybody got disrupted and everybody figures out the disruption afterwards. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I guess, to say, well, we should have done well, this. Yeah, but we're but in now this. The date is here. Now, okay. now I say hindsight, that's no longer an excuse. Yeah. Because there's so many, you know, now examples. And you yeah. can't say you didn't know. It's this thing called the internet that mm. is out there. And so. Well, the, the, the good thing is people, people, people are embracing that kind of uh, i guess the desire to learn you're seeing more at least i am i'm seeing more people with the title demand planning you know within businesses that perhaps you, you didn't have before uh so their conversation is, is is happening the challenge probably is with the you know the pace of change being so quick you know the the things changing back and forth i mean things like pandemics throwing spanner in the works what do you say to to leaders about um wait who wait you know, people that are saying, well, I'm going to wait and see. What, what, what advice do you have for those guys or girls? Um, patience is a virtue. So sometimes waiting could actually be in your advantage. I don't know the circumstances of every business and why they would wait or why they wouldn't wait. Um, I think it's more important that they have a strategy that they could articulate um, that is not based on adjectives but is based on data. So if they're saying we want to wait because we're amazingly scared, that's not a reason. If they're saying we want to wait because our data is demonstrating that right now we're hitting these particular cycle goals, we have this particular margin, we, and there's, um, look, there's a lot of reasons. Um, yeah. Yeah, then, but then, valid, valid reasons, valid yeah, reasons with data that are supported by facts and data. Yeah, yeah, facts and figures. Now, I can make data say anything it wants. I've become very skilled at this. Uh, the thing about it is, don't just let the data do it, the talking. Let other people also look at the data, and let's see if they say the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then you have your answer. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I don't blame people and companies for waiting or not acting. Um, I just think that as long as they have a strategy and it's data-driven and they're not using adjectives to describe all their their failures and, and you know, thing, like I don't like when people say, um, our business is going to have the most amazing year. Yeah. I, to me, that's like you're wasting every breath of, and, and you're wasting my entire time. What I'd rather be saying is our business is going to grow 7.2% this year, driven by X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. This is where I think it needs to go for you to make the decision. Um, yeah. And then ultimately, if you say, I don't know what to do, I, I, I'm kind of in this middle, then I do have a position, which is lean in. In other words, when you don't know what to do, dip your toe in the water. Um, I didn't say jump in and make the pool water fall everywhere. I said, put the toe in the water, get a little team together, and do an experiment. The experiment will be worth the time. Well, that's that's sound advice, Neil. I think on that note, we're gonna we're gonna end it here because obviously you and I can talk for for hours about uh, about demand sensing and about the state of the industry, et cetera. Um, but thank you so much for joining us on Fin TV. We look forward to seeing you at uh, upcoming events that you're going to be speaking at for us, talking yeah. about this and talking to other professionals and the work that you do to help further the understanding of demand sensing and uh, essentially the you know the advancement of supply chain. But let's hope you still stay stay cool uh, for a long period to come. At least we think you're cool. Well, thanks. I'll, I'll try to stay as cool as I can and. Hopefully the weather here in Tel Aviv, even though my background is, uh, looks like it's a New York background, but I am in Tel Aviv today. Uh, and finally, it's not 105 degrees Fahrenheit in wow. May, by the way. Oh, so it's, well, good it's, luck with uh, that. It's reduced a little bit today, so we're okay. But thank you very much for the time, and I'll see you at the next conference. Yeah, thank you very much. For those of you joining, uh, we'll see you at the next episode of FinTV. Thank you for joining us.